Well, it's been a while since we have uh, been in this series on what the Bible says. And uh, um, again, some, some good questions, and I had a little bit more time to be thinking about answers. Um, but uh, we're excited about jumping back into the study, just throwing this out there as well. It's not too late for you to submit a question. If you'd still like to submit a question, um, you're more than welcome to do so, even as we go through the topic tonight. If it spurs a question that you'd like some follow-ups on, um, be, you're more than welcome to, to uh, ask those. As I mentioned this morning, tonight we're going to be asking a question that I think is very pertinent and relevant not only to us, but uh, to our society. And what does the Bible say about mental health? The alarm bells are sounding all around about a mental health crisis in our country, uh, particularly among the young people. A recent CDC study reported that the percentage of high school teens experiencing persistent feelings of hopelessness and sadness was 42%. That's almost half. Someone even sent me a a, a graphic right before the the sermon in in preparation for this about um, the number of people in in our country who are on antidepressants. And it's over 100 out of every 1,000 people that are on antidepressants. There is, there is a mental health crisis. Our country is one that is plagued with depression and anxiety, which is ironic when you, when you, when you think about the fact that we're the most prosperous nation, we have so much opportunity, and yet it seems as, as the wealth and opportunity increases, so does the depression and the anxiety. How do we as Christians approach this issue? How do we discern truth from error when we consider the proposed solutions for mental health? And before I jump into the study tonight, I want want to, when I say mental health, I'm going to be talking about not only the problem, but the proposed solution in our broader culture. So sometimes when I'll say, here's a problem with mental health, I'm not saying that there's a problem with mental health, I'm saying here's a problem with the proposed solutions that that are popular today. How do we discern truth from error? I want to start off by by acknowledging the fact that God is concerned with how we think. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is concerned about your mind. He's concerned about your thinking. He wants your mind to be renewed. We see this again in Ephesians 4.23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. God is concerned with how we think. He wants our minds to be renewed. So before we jump into what does the scripture say about mental health, let's define mental health. What is mental health? Well, let's look at the definition at mentalhealth.gov. Seems like a good place to go to find the definition. This is what they say. Mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, make choices. Mental health is important at every stage of life, from childhood, adolescence, through adulthood. One thing I find interesting about the definition is they don't really define it. 
They say it includes this, it affects this, it's important, but there's really no clear what is it. It's kind of a very technical way of saying mental health means you're doing well, right? That, that you're, you're thinking what right, you're in a good spot, um, you're, not, you're not plagued by, by negative thoughts. But this is, and we're going to see how it's, the whole topic is actually really slippery. It's really difficult. The world recognizes there's a problem, but pinpointing it is really difficult. But this is the definition. And we consider mental health as a broad category. I, I want to acknowledge the fact that this is a huge category. And we could spend a whole sermon on any one of the subcategories or issues uh, related to mental health. But the, but the big ones, right, would probably be depression, anxiety, and, and suicide, which is often a result of the first two. I want to narrow our discussion a little bit for the sake of this sermon. We're not going to be talking about major disorders or disabilities that legitimately require treatment. I want to limit our discussion today in ways in which mental health is most frequently used and applied in our day-to-day -day life. In other words, I, I want to think of mental health in terms of a pursuit of inner peace and thriving. All right, that's, that's, that's what we're going to be thinking of in terms of mental health. Key phrases, if you were to scroll through Instagram or, or, or social media with the key phrase mental health to see what's being talked about, um, how, is, how are people seeking to find he uh, help in this area? You'll see phrases like this. Uh, setting boundaries. Taking care of your inner child. Uh, Self-care. Self-talk. You'll be warned about toxic people. Toxic relationships. You will be encouraged to be kind to yourself. Right? These are some of the phrases that we hear in, in, in connection with mental health. And we're going to look at how does the scripture um, connect with this issue? Um, how does it speak to it? Um, but before we do that, I want to start off by acknowledging what we can learn from mental health. What can we learn from the issue of mental health? This problem that our culture uh, is bringing to our attention. I say one good thing about this is that there's an acknowledgement of the brokenness and emptiness in humanity. In a very real sense, the realm of mental health recognizes that this brokenness and emptiness is universally experienced by mankind. The, the world sees a problem and they're sounding the alarm bells. They're like, something is wrong, something is wrong. Another good reason, good thing about the, the focus on mental health is that this, if you want to call it a movement, it, in a sense, it, it, bring, it brought humaneness back to humanity. Mental health, the mental health movement originally coined mental hygiene, uh, was a reaction, actually, against biological psychiatry. Think insane asylums, people who have gone mad, right? That, that back in the day, when someone had a problem mentally, what were they, you know, put in a straitjacket and, and put away in an institution, and often there was barbaric treatments in the asylum, which approached abnormalities from a strictly biological deterministic standpoint. And, and, and the barbarism that our culture, I think, enacted in that stage of our thinking as a country, there was a response, a reaction to that. We realized, no, these are people. 
These are humans. Again, I think it points to the reality of the, the image of God within us that all people recognize, but even though they can't really put their finger on why, why people aren't just animals, they acknowledge that there is something different, that there needs to be a humanity. There's no foundation as to why, but again, it's a good thing that they recognize that we aren't just animals. We're not just biologically determined. Another good thing we can learn from mental health. The importance of paying attention to your own way of thinking and how you live. Even the connection between physical activity and mental health. I think that's a good emphasis, right? That exercising can help how you think. Um, that I believe the body describes us, the, the Bible describes us as, as, a, as a whole, as soul and body are intricately connected. And, and, and our body can impact our soul, and our soul can impact our body. And so, so I think this is actually a good emphasis. We don't often pay enough attention to how our own way of thinking is hurting so many other things in our lives. We just live through life. We react. We go through the motions, and, and we don't stop and think, how am I thinking? How am I living? One, one more positive in the mental health area is the emphasis on the inner person over the outward experience. Instead of just image, right, it's what's going on on the inside. We, I think we've seen a distortion of this, in, even in the, the transgender movement, where it's the inner person that's all that matters, and you have to adjust your outer person to, to, line in with, to, to come in line with your inner experience. But the emphasis on the, on the soul, the inner person, over just a, a good image on the outside is a good emphasis. So there's some things we can learn. What are some shortcomings in our culture when we think of mental health? I think there's three shortcomings. With all the good that's there, bringing up this problem in our society, where, where does the mental health movement fall short? Three areas that I, that I noticed. Number one, defining the problem. When you, when you don't have a biblical worldview, you, you don't have sin in the equation, right? So you can't include that in your diagnosis, and so therefore you're limited. And when you can't point your finger at sin or the curse, there's only a certain things you can point to. You can point to circumstances, you can point to society, you can point to biology. That's about it. So while able to pinpoint contributing factors and symptoms, the world cannot put its finger on the main problem. They know that something's wrong, but they can't point at the main problem. The DSM-5, DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is kind of the, the official record of, of every mental disorder. They clearly state in their introduction that they don't know the cause for these conditions. They just describe them. And therefore, they don't recommend any prescribed path of treatment. They just, this is a bunch of problems. This is a bunch of disorders. When you don't know the Lord and the original intent of his creation, you cannot define normal. And that's one fascinating thing. In all of the thousand pages of abnormalities in the DSM-5, there's not one definition of what normal is. What is normal? How do I know if I'm normal? How do I know that, 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 how can I get from my abnormality to normality? How do I know when I've arrived? 
But even then, there's an innate recognition that humanity is fallen and broken, and for that, that's, that's a good recognition, because we are. But the world cannot fully define the problem. There's another shortcoming in mental health, and that's defining healthy, as I mentioned. What's normal? Health is usually framed in terms of uh, a reduction of bad thoughts and increased personal happiness. Um, if, if, if the bad thoughts, the depression, anxiety are, are diminished and your personal happiness is being re re realized, then that's a good direction. Now, from a Christian perspective, we know what normal is, don't we? We see it in its fullest, sen fullest sense before the fall. We have a framework which shows us God's original creation, his good creation. That's normal. And so in that sense, all of creation is now abnormal because of the fall, that the curse has affected everything. But we not only know what normal is, but from a Christian perspective, we also know what the new normal is after the fall. And while the world can point to a problem and say, well, you know, seek to be as healthy mentally and happy as you can in your life, again, it's, it's hard to pinpoint, well, what does that look like? What is healthy? What is normal? And then thirdly, a shortcoming is defining the solution. If I were to boil down all the proposed solutions, it would fall under these three things. Make right decisions, be in the right location, and surround yourself with the right people. All right, so mental health, problems in mental health arise when you're making poor life decisions, when you're not in the right spot, and you have bad people around you. And so, change those, right? Now again, there's nothing bad about those goals. Scripture points to many of these things as good things. But if your mental health is dependent on your environment, your location, and the people around you, there's some hopelessness there, isn't there? What about the person who physically cannot change their circumstances? Are they hopeless? And I think there's this desire in our culture of finding this ideal spot in my life when I'm free of the, of the toxicity, of, the, of, of the, 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 the negative people or the negative circumstances. But when you zoom out and you look at our whole world and you look at the curse, you realize there's not a place that exists like that on the, in the world. Ecclesiastes 1.8, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing, that this whole world is vanity of vanities, that, 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 that there is sin everywhere. And, and if we think we have to just get to the right location, the right spot, in order for us to finally be mentally healthy, you know what we're going to find ourselves doing? Hopping from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Now again, are there situations in which removing yourself from a bad situation into a good situation is the right thing to do? Absolutely. The Bible talks about that. But what's the ultimate solution? Our worldview, our approach to this issue must make room for a solution that includes those who cannot change their location, who cannot remove themselves from certain people. So how should we as a Christian, as Christians, approach the topic of mental health? We're going to get into a lot of passages, and I want to, we're going to be reading those, and, and, I, and I encourage you, if, if I'm going too fast for you to flip to these physically, just write them down, and, uh, and, then, and then read through them on your own. 
Before we do that, let's just kind of get a roadmap for how we as Christians should approach the topic of mental health. Uh, number one, make sure you have the right starting point. Don't embrace the mental health movement in its entirety and then see how the Bible fits into that. Embrace God's written revelation in its entirety and then see where the mental health movement correlates with what God has already said. It's a really important distinction. We don't just digest everything the world has to say about mental health as gospel and then either pick the parts of scripture that, uh, that agree to it or change scripture to make it agree with it. We need to flip that around. What does scripture say about renewing our minds, about what God wants for us in our thinking? And when we see agreement between with what God says and what fallen humanity made in the image of God notices when there's correlation there, we can rejoice in that. So make sure you have the right starting point. Make sure you define what is healthy according to God's word. Did you know that the Bible says that healthy does not necessarily include happiness? There's many a sinful decision motivated by a pursuit of happiness, or we could say mental health. But the Bible doesn't necessarily limit healthiness to happiness. And then thirdly, just beware of some dangers. Beware of some dangers. Here's three dangers about, again, if, beware, talking about our starting point, embracing the terminology and approach broadly toward mental health rather than scripture. Here's one danger, recasting sin as mental health and replacing repentance with healing. A lot of times you'll hear, I, I, I'm thinking of a particular example of a, a celebrity, uh, a Christian celebrity who, who made some very sinful decisions in their life. And they kind of got publicly shamed and had to step back for a little bit. And this person finally made kind of an apology video describing what was going on in their life. And they never once mentioned, I sinned. I was wrong. I made some really sinful, selfish decisions that hurt other people. No, instead it was, termed, it was made in terms of, I had to step back and I had to focus on my mental health. I had to heal. And there's a place for that. But oftentimes we can, we can just redefine sin as a problem in mental health and redefine repentance as healing or replace repentance with healing. There is a place for healing. Healing is good. The Bible talks about the necessity of healing. But we don't want to recast sin as just mental health. Since the world can't really include sin in their framework, sinful and selfish choices are viewed as poor mental health. The blame for your sinful choices is placed on circumstance, other people, or family history. And all those are indeed influences. But they aren't the cause when we're talking about our own sin. So that's a danger. Another danger would be depending on circumstances for personal happiness. There's nothing wrong with trying to create an atmosphere conducive to your own mental stability. But beware you don't reach the point of trying to take over God's sovereignty. When personal happiness is the goal, then any decision to reach that goal is justified. 
cutting loved ones out of your life, forsaking God-given responsibilities, leaving a marriage can all be excused because your personal happiness depends on circumstances. And, and, and it's very easy to deceive yourself into thinking, well, God wants me to be happy, and so therefore, I need to hurt this person or I need to forsake this responsibility that God has given me because I need happiness. A third danger, abusing the terms toxic and boundaries. How do we abuse these terms? It's when we use them to the point where we disobey God's command to love our enemies. What's an enemy? An enemy is someone who is opposed to you, who spitefully uses you, the scripture says. And we're called to love our enemies. Sometimes when we, just, we digest everything that the mental health movement gives us, we prioritize boundaries over love. We deem certain people unworthy of our love because we're pursuing mental health. And again, all things must be in balance. We need to, I, when, when, I, when, I, when I say that we need to love our enemies and, 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 and love those who, who hurt us, we want to keep things in balance. So I can understand the scripture talks about removing yourself from evil men. It talks about not being influenced by those who hate Christ. Because our peace and strength ultimately comes from Christ, not self or circumstances, we can be vulnerable and risky in our love toward others. We can love the unlovely. We can even love the toxic person. We can sacrifice and serve with no expectation of anything in return because our security is in Christ. And so we can't abuse the terms toxic and boundaries and excuse ourselves from Christ's call to love those who are unloving. Now, finally, how, do we, how does the Bible address this issue? How does the Bible address mental health? We need to go to Scripture. If this is a crisis in our country, and, and I think it's fair to say it is, if we ignore the problem in our society, depression and anxiety and all of these problems that our society is facing, we're doing ourselves and our culture a disservice. The Bible speaks to this. It speaks to this extensively, and it provides the solution. How does the Bible address it? We read in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's what the cry is, isn't it? My soul needs to be revived. I am, I am plagued by these thoughts. I'm plagued by this depression. I'm plagued by this anxiety. I'm plagued by this fear or this guilt. I need to be revived. I need, I need my mind to be renewed. How does the Bible address mental health? I want us to focus on two components of how Scripture approaches this problem that the world cannot offer. The world can offer some good things, some good ways to, to manage in difficult circumstances or, 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 or how to navigate certain problems, but, but, there, but it falls short. Here's two things that Scripture offers, that Christ offers, that our culture cannot offer. Number one, grace and hope that does not depend on you. Our culture sees the brokenness. 
But when your worldview does not allow for God, where is the source of grace and strength? It's necessarily limited to yourself and other people. And so you'll hear phrases like this, be kind to yourself. Or don't be afraid to get help. And that's a, that's a good piece of advice. Depending fully on yourself and others for your mental health isn't always the most encouraging and hope-filled thing. Sometimes in, in good, you know, out of a good place, people will say, it's up to you. Only you can decide how you respond to the situation. And that's encouraging, but have you ever been really discouraged by that thought? Have you ever seen those anti-motivational posters? It starts out with like a, a common phrase and then it ends with this really like depressing conclusion. I saw one on social media with a picture of beautiful mountains and a sunset and it read, remember, the only person you can truly rely on is you. And then underneath it said, what a nightmare. <laughs> you know, it sounds inspirational to say that you're in control, that only you can make yourself happy. But you know what, for many people, that thought is overwhelming. Really? It's all up to me? I have to somehow get out of this, out of this deep pit of depression, of anxiety? That is discouraging. Depending on others, while very important and very helpful, can also lead to more problems. What about the person who's all alone? What about the person where there's no one there to care or listen. Are they without hope? Is there no solution for them? There are some real limits to what this world can offer. Now, the Bible, again, recognizes the need for right thinking. The Bible recognizes the need to get help from others. That's why we have the church. But both of these, scripts, both of these are scriptural, but even in both of those cases, the grace received is ultimately sourced in Jesus Christ. And even when you can't find help in yourself, and even when you can't find help from others, God's grace and strength is still available because it's sourced in Him alone. It's a grace that's outside of yourself. The one who is full of grace and truth. So what is this grace and hope that does not depend on you? See, first of all, that rest comes from Jesus. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30 says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we were to draw out a mental health action step from this verse, what would it be? Come to Jesus and learn about him. And what is the result? He will give you rest. Rest comes from Jesus. Peace comes from Jesus. One of my favorite passages, Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Do not be anxious about anything 
But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your what? Minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. There's anxiety in that passage, isn't there? It recognizes that anxiety is a horrible situation. It's very real. And what's the mental health action step that we see in this passage? Bring your anxiety to God in thankful prayer. Do you see it there in that passage? But in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Bring your anxiety to God in thankful prayer and meditate on God's truth. Whatever things true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And what's the result if we follow this mental health action step? God gives you a peace that passes understanding and guards your heart and your mind. What an incredible thought that it is not solely up to you to guard your own mind. But Jesus himself can give you a peace that passes understanding as you bring your anxiety to God in thankful prayer and you meditate on God's holy truth. He gives you a peace and he guards your hearts and your minds. Rest comes from Jesus. Peace comes from Jesus. Number three, contentment comes from Jesus. Matthew 6 31 through 34. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. When you see the word Gentiles there, that's simply referring to those who don't know the Lord. You know what those who don't know the Lord are doing? They're, They're full of anxiety. Because there's no room for God in their worldview. They're just, they're seeking, they're asking, they're anxious. All the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first to the kingdom of God and don't worry what is outside of your control, what only God can control. And what's the result? As we seek first the kingdom of God, God will take care of your needs. Contentment comes from Jesus. Number four, hope comes from Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But continue on in that passage. He continues, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself 
restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. We must refocus on our future hope, not on our temporal hope. This world is not a reliable place to put your hope in. Humble yourself. Cast your anxiety on God and hope in eternity. And what is the result? Christ himself, Christ himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. What an incredible thought that it is not up to you or other people to fulfill that yourself. Christ himself will do this. There is a grace and hope that does not depend on you. And the world just doesn't have a framework for that. And in that sense, I don't fault them for not including it. Because they don't believe in God. They don't know the gospel. They're trying, and since you can see, they're trying their best with what they've got in their worldview. But they're missing out on the most glorious truths. Grace and hope that does not depend on you, but also... Scripture talks about peace and health that does not depend on circumstances. One of the big goals of mental health is to create spaces conducive for mental health and human flourishing. And say, in and of itself, that's a noble goal. Likewise, the Bible says there are times when the best thing to do is to remove yourself from a situation. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company ruins good morals. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. But we need a hope that is not completely dependent on our circumstances. Sometimes it's impossible to remove yourself from a toxic situation. And here's the great reality, that God's peace is still available in those situations. We read of people in Scripture who had no one to help, and yet God gave them peace. Situations where people were, you could say, in a very toxic situation, and God gave them peace. Jesus gives peace when people desert you. 2 Timothy 4, 16-17, At my first offense, Paul says, No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now, if you're going to look at that problem without God, you're going to look at your situation and you're going to say, the problem lies in the fact that I don't have the right people around me. And if I can just get the right people around me, I'll be fine. And when I don't, what does that do? It plunges me into deeper discouragement and depression. What does Paul say? All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. God gives you peace even when people desert you. And as we've seen that passage, it allows you to continue pursuing your mission before God to proclaim the gospel even when you are alone. God gives you strength even in human weakness. 
Perhaps some of you even thought of this passage as, as, as we were going through this topic, but 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Again, this is Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. A really difficult situation that it sounds like Paul just, if he could just get out from under the situation, oh, I'd be so much better. I could serve the Lord so much better. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, listen to this, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder if there are situations in your life where you're so focused on removing yourself from the situation that you haven't stopped and considered the strength that God is giving you in that situation. What does it say in James 1? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And so, let patience have its perfect work. There are times to remove yourself from a situation, but you know there are other times to stay under a situation? Where God says, no, I'm not removing this thorn in the flesh, but my grace is made perfect in weakness. God gives strength even in human weakness. God gives peace even when life is toxic. John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Sometimes we look at, we're in the world, and we think, I need to find my peace in the world. And Jesus says, no, you're in me is your peace, and in the world is your tribulation. And he lays it out there and says, this is what you can expect. This world is going to be full of tribulation. This world is going to be full of toxic situations. And in me, you may have peace because I have overcome the world. And fourthly, Jesus protects even when Satan tempts you. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this in John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You know, there's a psalm, I can't remember where exactly right now, but there's a psalm where, where the psalmist says, Oh, that I had wings, that I might fly to the mountains. He's in distress, he's in persecution, he's like, if I could just sprout wings and fly away and get out of this toxic situation, this temptation, man, that'd be so much better. And Jesus, when he's praying for his disciples, he tells his father, you know what I'm not going to pray for? I'm not going to pray that you remove my disciples from the world, that you remove them from the tribulation. But he will pray, he did pray, that he would keep them from the evil one. Jesus protects you when Satan tempts you. 
I heard once, it once said by a Christian counselor that every human problem is intended to be repaired and restored by Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your struggles find their solution in Jesus Christ? The one who offers you peace, rest, and strength, and hope? The best the world can offer you is to tell you how you can cope or how you can change your surroundings. They might be able to offer a a, a medication or two. That's all they can do. But Jesus offers a peace and a strength when coping just doesn't work. Jesus offers hope and joy even when you can't change your surroundings. The problems identified by mental health, depression, anxiety, and more are real problems. And in a group this size, I know there's multiple people here who find themselves struggling, perhaps in a very deep and significant way. And I just want you to know that you don't have to shoulder your burdens alone. The Bible never looks at your problems and says, well, you, you, just need to, you just need to shape up. You just need to deal with it. Put a smile on your face and show that joy of the Lord. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus approaches us in our depression, in our anxiety, in our sorrow, and says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The word of God points to us as the church a people who should hear and share those burdens. Not because the church and the people in it have some grace in and of themselves, but so that they can be simply conduits of God's grace that they've received from God. What does it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? So that we might be able to comfort others with the same comfort that we've been comforted by God. Why do we need the church? Because there are other people who have received the grace and the strength and the peace and the health that comes from God, and they want to give it. They want to show you, this is how God gave me hope in my horrible situation. This is how God gave me strength in my marriage. This is how God gave me hope and direction in my depression. And ultimately, Jesus is here to take those burdens on himself, casting all your cares, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you only look to the world for the solution to your deepest struggles, I'll just say that you're missing out on the most joyful and hopeful and lasting change that you can experience. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Lord renews our minds. God is concerned about how we think, and his scripture gives us answers to how we can direct our thinking to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us on our own. Lord, we pray for those in this room that are going through deep waters, that are going through significant mental 
and spiritual struggles. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is near to those who are brokenhearted. You are close to those who are crushed in spirit. God, you see those struggles, you know those struggles, and you want to offer grace. I pray that through your word and through your people, that grace would be imparted to where it's needed. That each one of us wouldn't be so proud to pretend as if we don't have struggles, but that we would be ready and eager to share the grace that we've received from you to encourage those who need it. We thank you for how your word guides us and strengthens us. I pray we live in it.